Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back. Um, before I introduce our speaker, it's our tradition to introduce ourselves. Um, I'll start. My name is Jeff. My name is David. John. My name is Cass. Jack. My name is Jerry. My name is Jerry. My name is Paul. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Michael. I'm Patrick. Nathan. Ricardo. My name is Mark. My name is Patrick. Uh, I'm Baruch. I'm Lee. Silas. Walter. George. Uh, my name is Harley. Gary. <coughs> Prasada. My name is Michael. I'm Adam. <coughs> Donna Kala. My, my name is Jesse. I'm Peter. My name is Gage. I'm Miss Waldo. Grisha. Eric. My name is Jeff. Jay. I'm Joe. L. Mike. River. River. Sorry? Kamala. Ah. found out through discussion with him in the lobby that he was one of the people who organized the Peace Buddhist, uh, Peace Buddhist Fellowship meeting in 1991. Yeah, I think 92, but in the, 92. one of those years. So. Uh, out of which uh, GBF was formed. <coughs> was formed that wanted to uh, get organized, and so he's sort of one of our, our fathers. Um, so, uh, that said, um, Donald Rothberg, PhD, a member of the Teachers Council at Spirit Rock has practiced insight and med meditation since 1976 and has also received training in Tibetan Dzogchen and Mahamudra practice and the Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy. Formerly on the faculties of the University of Kentucky, Kenyon College, and Seyburg Graduate School, he writes and teaches on meditation, daily life practice, spirituality and psychology, and socially engaged Buddhism. He's the author of The Engaged Spiritual Life, A Buddhist Approach to Transforming Ourselves in the World. And he has a website at donaldrothberg.com. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. And um, it's a pleasure to be here again and see a lot of familiar faces. And this morning I wanted to uh, talk about a very fundamental theme which is really a response to the deep question, what is the basic root for uh, human suffering, for conflict, for the distress of uh, our world, for our own individual distress? And 
In Buddhist tradition, we have a very clear um, answer to that. And the answer is that the root cause is a kind of ignorance. It's really a kind of deep uh, spiritual <coughs> ignorance. And it's um, interesting that I think the main alternative response to that question in our culture is that the root of problems is evil. Uh, evil people, axes of evil, <laughs> and so forth. And it's a very different view because when we see um, ignorance as the basic problem, I think it's both at once uh, sobering but also hopeful. And when we see uh, evil as the problem, it sets up, um, sets ourselves up for a lot of war and probably sets us up for a lot of denial of our own so-called evil. It also makes possible a lot of Hollywood movies. <laughs> If ignorance was our main paradigm in society, I think the movie industry would look very, very different. And so I want to explore this morning a way of understanding what I sometimes like to call the anatomy of ignorance and point to ways of practicing. And this is really giving, I think, an overview of our practice and really uh, pointing both to the uh, dimensions of our own ignorance and ways that we practice both um, individually and more collectively uh, to cut through ignorance. Of course, this is very, very clearly uh, stated in Buddhist tradition, you know, that, that the root cause is ignorance. Uh, this is, these are some quotes from the, from the teachings of the Buddha. Warped perceptions are what keep your mind on fire. Another one, delusion burns the bewildered, unaware of the noble Dhamma. And the sense of ignorance there, again, is not ignorance of facts or ignorance of specific um, information but it's a sense of not really knowing who we are and how we are in relation to others. There's a, a line from the uh, 8th century from uh, Shantideva, who uh, was a teacher and wrote the book uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Some of you have probably read that. And there's a line in there where he says, um, this world is inflamed with insanity Due to, the con due to the efforts of those who are confused about themselves. And what, so what I want to do is unpack that sense of ignorance. First to talk a little bit more about uh, the nature of ignorance in general, and then uh, point to three main forms that I think the, our ignorance takes. I'm going to call the first more personal and psychological, the second more social, and the third more spiritual. I think these intersect. 
And in doing so, I'm not giving uh, a totally traditional understanding. If we were giving a tr traditional understanding, we would go to the third aspect. And we would um, particularly look to how we are confused about um, impermanence, the nature of suffering, and the um, sense of a enduring self. But I'm going to start a little bit earlier. I think, first of all, maybe to um, give some images of ignorance that have, that have uh, been there, because it's really something that's shared by other traditions. I think you find in Western traditions, uh, the Greeks also emphasize ignorance. And then one thing to say, I think, to that, if, when, we, when we see ignorance as the root problem, as I mentioned, it can be very sobering, because we can see, in a sense, have an have a intuition of the extent of our own ignorance. But I think it's also hopeful, and it also really uh, sets us up for ultimately for compassion in both looking at ourselves and looking at others. Because ignorance is workable. It can take a while. So some of you may remember in um, um, the writings of Plato, some of you may have read Plato's Republic, in Philosophy 101, anyone? Sorry to bring back possibly disturbing memories. Um, and there, you know, in the, at the heart of that book, there's an, there's an image, which is really an image of ignorance, which is, which is that of human life as taking place in a cave. And you may remember that the human condition is that of people who are in chains in the cave in the dark, staring at shadows on the wall. The shadows are cast by a group of men whose images are cast as shadows because they're walking in, in front of a fire. And the fire casts the, the light on the far wall and they are shadows. And we spend our lives, according to that image, being with the shadows and thinking that they're real. It's a very interesting image, maybe, of television or watching images all the time and somehow thinking that this is reality. So it actually is quite contemporary in a certain way. And in that text, what the spiritual aspirant has to do is really turn one's life around so one actually turns and sees that what one took to be reality is in fact a bunch of projections. And you look and you see that and then one also realizes that it's possible to go out of the cave. And so with tremendous effort one can see that what one took to be real is a bunch of projections, one's turn, one turns around and then, with the help of others, can move out of the cave and see reality as it is. And it doesn't really end there, because in, in Plato's story, once one's out of the cave, then one still has to make the effort, much like the bodhisattva, to help others move out of the cave. Again, a very, a very strong image. Um, there's another nice, uh, kind of interesting way to say this, that's in the poetry of Rumi, where he talks about uh, our basic condition 
as being like a drunk who goes from tavern to tavern. So I wanted to read this uh, poem from Rumi. It is called The Tavern. This is part of the poem. All day I think about it, and then at night I say it. Where did I come from? What am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. My soul is from elsewhere, I'm sure of that. I, I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back around to that place, I'll be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent sitting in this aviary. The day is coming when I fly off, but who is it now in my ear who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could taste one sip of an answer, I would break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. So we have that image. Again, it's on a lot of poetry, a lot of text. I mean, some of you may remember Blake talks about that if we could somehow, what is he, what's his line? Uh, if, we could, if we could cleanse the doors of perception, we would see things as they are. The writer Nabokov says we are, we are artistically caged. Yeah. And so how to both look at the nature of that ignorance and how to uh, understand ways to work with it. So I want to look at these three ways of talking about, um, really three ways of understanding ignorance. And I think they all are intersecting. And I think that when we take each of them seriously, we actually have kind of a broader view of our life practice that actually goes beyond traditional Buddhist understandings and really brings in some of the resources of the contemporary world. So again, the, I'm going to look at what I've been calling personal or psychological ignorance, social ignorance, socially conditioned ignorance, and then um, spiritual ignorance. Okay, so ready? <laughs> again, I'm thinking of this as both sobering and hopeful. So if you find yourself on one side, especially the sobering side, remember that we'll get to practice. I think, but it, it does, I think this does point out a lifetime curriculum for, for training. So the, um, the personal sense of ignorance, which is especially looked at in psychology, is kind of linked to how in mainstream psychology, there's talk about the unconscious. We are not aware of large numbers of factors which actually drive us. And so it's a familiar sense in our culture. I think it goes well with the Buddhist notion of ignorance, as, as there, there are forces that drive us. And I want to say again that the personal or psychological and the social and spiritual are interwoven. It's not totally distinct. In my own uh, both uh, personal work and work with others, I do a lot of work with the theme of uh, transforming the judgmental mind. As some of you know, I don't think I've given a talk on that here, maybe, maybe another time. And it's a very powerful um, uh, and almost endemic problem in our culture. You know? And again, I think probably most of us have worked with issues of self-judgment or judgment with others, and they, they, they go together quite a bit. 
And it's certainly uh, been a big issue for me. I sometimes say I'm a recovering judgmental person. <laughs> you may be as well. And so in that work, we often see that there are strong self-judgments that people have. Again, very, very common in this culture. Very, very common with very beautiful people. People who you would look at and say, my gosh, these are magnificent human beings. And, they, and we are often um, pained and even sometimes crippled at certain points by self-judgment. And one of the interesting uh, areas of inquiry in doing this work is that over time we can really see that a lot of those judgments are driven by what, what I've come to call uh, core limiting beliefs that are often way beneath the surface that many of us have and that they can be, uh, there can be negative beliefs as well as positive beliefs, but it's the negative ones that are particularly challenging. And, you know, so there might be limiting beliefs of, I am not okay, or I am basically flawed, or could be about myself, could be about others, I cannot trust others. I can... Uh, <clears throat> not be myself and be loved by others. The world is dangerous, and so forth. And most of us, I think almost all of us, have some versions of this. And we're often totally unaware of them. And they drive our behavior. You know, they, they drive our behavior. Someone who is told at age four that you are not okay because of this, whatever, your anger, your energy, your... Um, um, curiosity, whatever, it, that gets uh, thwarted. And most of us internalize a certain message, that I, which is basically that you will not be loved unless you act this way. And we internalize that and we live, start living a life you know, and it doesn't get really shifted until we come to California and start therapy. <laughs> and you can imagine, you know, and it's, it's often from conditioning at a very young age. A lot of this is explored quite well by a lot of psychology, you know, but it's also, there are dimensions that are not necessarily looked at well. But there, there, are, there are aspects of our own being that we're quite ignorant about that are driving us, you know, and uh, it may be, you know, someone may have been told, let's say at age four, don't be angry. Angry people are bad. And then that person internalizes that. When that person becomes angry, there's self-judgment. When others are angry, there is judgment of them, and so forth. And that person doesn't know why all this is happening. And there are vast, almost networks of ignorance that all of us have. And I know that probably for most or all of us, much of our adult life has been coming to know our own personal conditioning and to work with it, right? And to see some of those core beliefs and to work to transform them, you know, which is not always easy. You know, it's, it's somehow to bring them into view. And a lot of times we start that work by really seeing where there's distress, seeing where there's, you know, possibly judgmental mind. And people I work with, seeing where that judgmental mind surfaces, 
is a starting point and becomes almost like a, a um, um, something to track that is a, that we can follow to the depths, to the places where we don't know ourselves, to the places we where we are confused about ourselves and driven in all sorts of ways. You know, and it can manifest in many, many, many ways. But that is one whole area of our work. You know, and it often uh, intersects with the social and the spiritual. And people come on retreats. And I certainly know even, and I've taught at Spirit Rock the uh, two-month retreat a few times, and people who are incredibly dedicated practitioners. A lot of the territory we look at are some of those limiting personal beliefs. You know, their views of themselves. Again, judgment, a huge theme, but plenty of, plenty of other themes you know, that, that uh, involve some kind of uh, limiting belief that is largely unconscious, that drives people. You know, and we all know that, whether it's why do we find relationships that aren't going to work, right? And what drives us, you know? And we, and we can use those difficult experiences as a starting point to say, what's really there underneath the surface? What's really there for me? You know, how, do, how do I come to self-knowledge? Yeah. The poet Rilke has a line, we come of age as masks. We don't really know ourselves. Right? We all come with this conditioning. Or some of you know there was an image from the poet Robert Bly, who has this, uh, you know, image of two people meeting each other, maybe maybe on a date, and they bring their personality there, and then behind them they drag a long bag, which he calls the shadow. And it's like you could have a cartoon image of the, you know, these smiling people meeting each other, talking about things with these, you know, like um, 20-foot bags behind them, right? <laughs> Does that resonate? <laughs> it's, it's there. And so that's the first aspect of our ignorance. And we could take we could take a year or five years to explore that together. We could have a curriculum where we, where we do that over time. So I'm partly giving a map and partly giving energy, hopefully, to see where we are called to, um, to explore. The second area, which overlaps quite a bit, I'm, I'm talking about as socially conditioned ignorance. Again, uh, which is both there in the larger culture and gets internalized. You know, and it's ignorance of all sorts of different forms. One of the main forms of ignorance is how we internalize um, being part of the society. We internalize um, senses of people in a particular group either being good or bad. right? And we know those very well, right? We know that there are ways that we internalize the message of society about race or ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, class, age, and so forth, right? And there's very and and it's very very strong conditioning, you know. And I'm sure that everyone here has worked with that tremendously to really see that conditioning in oneself and to work through it, you know. And some of the, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure there are countless stories, you know, and we, we all internalize that. We have to look at that, you know, very, very honestly, you know. One uh, story that's very, very um, 
um, for me, quite moving when I tell it. Um, I've told it a number of times. Is uh, is from the uh, 1954 Supreme Court decision outlawing uh, racial segregation in the schools, and one of the supports for that decision came from studies done, I think, in Harlem by uh, Mamie and Kenneth Clark. And there were studies of young African-American girls. And some of you know this. These are the famous uh, doll studies. How many, how many know of, that, of those studies? And th those studies involved showing these young African-American girls. And studies were done in the uh, 40s and early 50s in New York. And they showed a doll, essentially a black doll and a white doll, to these young girls. And they asked them, which is the good doll? Which is the bad doll? You know, and then, which is like you? Right? And when they asked the, uh, these African-American girls, which is the good doll, they must entirely pointed to the white doll. What is the bad doll? It's the black doll. They asked a series of other questions. The last question was, which doll is like you? And, and half of them could not answer the question. And that was at a very young age. Can you, that internalization, we, we call that often internalized oppression. We internalize the messages of the society. And the message society, in the case of everything I mentioned, is full of ignorance. Right? full of constructions, projections about all these areas, right? And, and yet um, they're there, we internalize them. You know? I once did, uh, when I was in my 20s, I was really interested in dreams. And for about two years, I think dreams were more real than waking life. Has anyone ever, ever done that? <laughs> Had a period of time, it was very, and I was, you know, I was writing down like four dreams a night. And after about a year, a year and a half, I um, went back and looked at the uh, dreams and started classifying them. There were like 1,200 dreams or something. And I, I, went, I looked at them, and uh, there were a lot of interesting patterns. You know, my favorite dreams were the really lucid dreams when I was aware I was dreaming, and then all sorts of magical things happened. You know all sorts of altered states opened up and very amazing things. And one of my favorite dreams was when I, in one of those lucid dreams, I was taken to the factory where causes and effects were manufactured. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend visiting <laughs> that factory. But, it was very, you know, it was, but one of the things I noticed was that there was um, a very strong association between black men and fear in my mind. You know. And this was, I had grown up, um, probably unlike most people of European descent, I had grown up going to school with African Americans and grew up you know, with a lot of contact, but it was still, when I saw those dreams, that was in there. You know, that was in there, in my mind, right? There's a tremendous amount of work that we have to do, right? On all sorts of levels. There's internalized oppression, there's internalized privilege, there's internalized whatever. You know, racism, sexism, homophobia, everything. Even for those who, as it were, have the right views, right? So-called, right? It's very deep, right? And we, we know that, right? I think 
we, many of us, I'm sure, have looked at that a lot. And so it's a whole other area, and, it's all, and it, we can extend that kind of ignorance. That, you know, there's ignorance around all sorts of things. We're ignorant about what our country does with its foreign policy. We're, most of us, pretty ignorant. You know, the culture is very ignorant about what's happening to on that level of climate change and so forth. It's like we're kind of collectively moving towards the cliff, right? Something like that. Tremendous ignorance on a social level. And somehow, when we have the commitment to wake up, that's part of our wake awakening. So see, it's, uh, I think it's a very audacious path to say, I want to commit to awakening. So there's the personal awakening, there's awakening on the social level, individually, collectively, it's a lot, right? It's a, it's a lot that we're talking about, but I imagine that everyone here is called in all three of these um, aspects. And then the, the last one is what we can call spiritual ignorance. Again, this in, in Buddhist tradition, this is outlined very clearly. It's done a little bit differently in different traditions. In Theravada tradition, which is the one I'm most trained in, it's especially... Uh, there's especially a pointing to three main types of ignorance. One is that we are ignorant of the fact that things are impermanent. The second is that we are ignorant of the roots of suffering. So the first is we're ignorant of impermanence. We tend to take things that are impermanent as permanent, form of ignorance. Second is we tend to take things which are unreliable and not lasting as sources of happiness. And this leads to suffering. And the third is that we tend to think that we are separate, independent selves rather than seeing our own interdependence. And that these are deep, deep forms of ignorance that are very much rooted in our conditioning. You can see how they go along with the uh, personal and the social conditioning. Think of American individualism certainly doesn't help us to learn about not-self in the Buddhist sense, right? So there's so much conditioning here. And what we do in our practice is, especially when our practice develops, where we can actually look at this, we learn how to, and especially we do this in our formal practice, and this is where retreats are really, really crucial, we learn to be more with the sense of an ongoing flow. We see through, we learn, we can, in our practice, learn to be more with the sense of a flow and not be caught, so caught up with taking things to be permanent. We see through the often mystifying uh, power of language, which has us have, give a concept to everything. You know? And we uh, can be more, again, we experience this often in meditation, more of a sense of flowing with experience where things are not so fixed, where we can be with what we call a tree or with the natural world and not be so consumed with the concepts, you know. So we can be with a sunset and not be saying, this is a wonderful sunset, or instantly go for the camera, right? But we can actually be more with the direct experience. So a lot of meditation is there to take us to be more with the direct experience of things, less with the concepts. Not seeing impermanence is very caught up with being bound by concepts. 
you know, the concepts are obviously valuable, but when we get caught up with them, we will not we will not be able to see impermanence. And then the second area that we study and that we learn about, and this is again very very traditional, is that we learn how to see what the roots of suffering are, and not be so consumed by thinking, oh, this will make me happy. We stop grasping as much. I imagine this this is something which everyone here has felt a lot of learning about in one's practice, that we learn not to grasp so much, not to think, oh, this will bring me happiness, or this sense experience, or this relationship, or this trip, or whatever. But that we, you know, what we explore in the meditative path is more and more that the deepest happiness is more of a resting in our being and not grasping after things and letting phenomena come and go, acting skillfully where we need to, but not grasping so much. And this is, again, a very long training for most of us. There's a long, or it's a long training for the deeper, the deeper ways we grasp. I found in my own practice, I was able to let go of a large number of things fairly early in my practice, and they were mostly fairly insignificant. And the deeper ones take time. And then the third area is often the hardest to understand. It's this teaching called not-self, anatta, we can sometimes talk about it more positively as interdependence, that we learn to see that there's, we, there's more, that reality is much more interdependent, that we're much more in connection and not so separate. Again, we can get a sense of this in meditation. And I think many of us have these experiences at times. I like to interpret that sense of impermanence and the sense of not-self really by pointing to what um, some psychologists call the flow experience which we experience a lot, like when you are with someone you care about a lot and you've dropped all your self-consciousness and you're just with that experience, right? And just with that flow. And there's not so much a strong sense of self and maybe your gifts come out more. That's, I think, what's pointed to it. So it's not necessarily only a mystical sense of impermanence and not self. I think it's also very ordinary when we're doing, when we're in an activity and totally immersed. You know, we can see a lot of this with maybe with musicians or artists, right? People in, even in sports. You know, that when the, you know they, in sports, it's called being in the zone. Do you know that where there's not a sense of self? And you know, one of my friends, uh, Andy Cooper, wrote a book called Playing in the Zone about the psychological and spiritual dimension of sports, which is amazing, amazing stories of people who uh, had these experiences where they were totally psychic. They could almost be in the minds of their teammates, right? And they didn't talk about it very much. And so this is what, and I think we know that from a lot of very everyday experience. I don't think this is at all just an artifact of, um, of meditation. So let me just end with um, maybe one, one quote, and then I, and I wanted to have time for discussion. <coughs> This is from an Egyptian novelist named uh, Naguib uh, Mahfouz, a book called The Palace of Desire. He won the Nobel Prize for literature in 1988. 
This is one, well, okay, there, these are just a few sentences. The problem is not that truth is harsh, but that liberation from ignorance is as painful as being born. Run after truth until you're breathless and accept the pain involved in recreating yourself afresh. The problem is not that the truth is harsh, but that liberation from ignorance is as painful as being born. Run after truth until you're breathless and accept the pain involved in recreating yourself afresh. So, that is my offering. <laughs> Thank you. We have about uh, 10 or 15 minutes for any discussion or questions. I've given this, it's a very broad area, but I wanted to give a kind of a map. So please, and then, yeah, let's say your names too. I'm David. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when, when you're in, the, in this world, you often know about yourself, but you're often not seeing things clearly. Yeah. Like you're, 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 you have conditioning, you have judgments, you don't have all the information, but yet we have to act and make decisions about people and who to bring in our lives. Yeah. And there's a whole social justice thing where we have to kind of make decisions. Right. And I find for me what's going on is knowing that I'm not saying things clearly, it makes everything very, the decision making very tentative. Yeah. So I'm just curious about what you do in the world knowing that you're not saying things clearly. Yeah, what, what to do in one's personal life in the world knowing that one's not always seeing clearly. So a few things come to me, and I'm sure we could have very interesting discussions with, with uh, many contributions on that theme. But what comes to me um, initially are a few things. One is that, generally speaking, of course, we need to keep acting. And we need to do the best we can. So having a sense of practice is really the key. It's, it's like we're, we're always, if we, if we are doing our best, in a sense, we, um, we know that we will sometimes be acting out of ignorance in ways that we may either regret later or certainly not do the same thing later. So... And so to give ourselves a certain amount of slack is important. It can be helpful also to ask ourselves, where do I think I'm most ignorant? <laughs> you know, are there some places where I think I'm really, really confused? We generally can probably distinguish between the places where I'm really confused and those where I'm less confused. Right? And we might want to be very, very careful or even sometimes refrain from action if we identify some area where there is a lot of confusion. You know, I don't know what that might be. It might be, um, um, uh, I, I've been doing a fair amount of work with diversity issues and issues of racism. I was talking with someone a few days ago who said, you know, I feel really um, confused in this area. And if I find myself about to speak, I really, um, you know, I actually tend to err on the side of not speaking. Would more confusion be more, having more 
Well, you'd have to just see, you know, there, is there some area where, there, where, where there's just a lot of ignorance um, and where I'm pretty sure I'm very confused and is there a way that I can refrain from action in some area or, or do, you know, take a, take a sabbatical for a while. That might, that might make some sense. And are there areas where I'm clearer? Maybe certain social justice areas that, you know, one, one might um, be uh, confused or be attached to one's views but you might have a clearer sense of what's right, you know. I mean, one of the, um, um, I did that book that um, Jeff mentioned, The Engaged Spiritual Life, um, several years ago. One of the interesting areas for me was how do we work with mixed motivation? This is really related to your question. And I think, you know, we're, we're often going to have mixed motivation, and I think it's important just to accept it. But I think what I'm suggesting, if there are places where we think, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do a lot of damage here. <laughs> we might refrain from that and see if we can discriminate. But it's a great question. And, and, and to know that you know, our motivation might be mixed. I might be really attached to my views and, I might, and still I might be doing something which is very important. Yeah. So there's ignorance about where we're really attached, but there might not be ignorance about seeing injustice. Right? So it could be so, yeah. Um, please. Also, something that's been interesting to, to me lately is the fact that you know you start this breaking down of internalized values and social constructs and things like that. Yeah. And the individual, that's really very good, but back to point of view, when you think about how governments manage to function, when they've got a lot of people with whom they cannot consult daily, they establish norms, they control people, and they regulate to a certain extent, hopefully, safety and opportunity and yeah. things like that. But so it's kind of challenging because, you know, when I come back from a retreat or I've had some time for myself, it's really easy for me to remain true to the new, new values and yep. be watchful for internalized things that really are not part of like, who I am. But yet when I go back out into the world and you're interacting with all these people who are doing this whole other thing, it's kind of like, I find that yeah, very yeah. interesting. No, it's very, it's, uh, um, yeah, um, when you have to deal with other people, there are more complexities involved. <laughs> Do you know, I, I remember I read, uh, in college, I read Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, he has a line where he says, it is in French, l'enfer, c'est les autres. Do you know that? Do you know what it means? Um, usually translate as hell as other people. You know, it's, if I could just have people do what I want, everything would be pretty good. <laughs> so I think. But then, yeah. And so I think it's a form... You know, I, I've, I've been coming to see more and more the importance of what we could call mind, uh, mindfulness directed externally. We most, you know, in the ancient text, like in the Satipatthana Sutta, the instructions are to be mindful both internally of what's going on in one's own experience, but also be mindful externally. The teaching in the West is, mo is almost entirely about mindfulness as something internal. And I've been interested in what is that external mindfulness and for me it's become being able maybe to see when someone else is coming with a projection towards me, to see that, when someone else is reactive. You know, again, there's going to be a certain amount of my own interpretation. But often we can really have a sense of reactivity in a lot of ways. So when someone else is really angry, you know, in other words, not to be so caught 
at the level of views and ideas, but really, can I notice when uh, another person is um, advancing some mainstream dominant view and really to notice that and notice when I get triggered and so forth. This is not easy practice, right? But, but how, can, how can one do that? How can one actually start to uh, track all of that's coming at one? You know, it depends on where we work and the people we come in contact with, but it's a lot. You know, I, I was, you know, you know, I was thinking of a recent uh, family interaction. You know, and families are actually uh, excellent places to do uh, short retreats. <laughs> you know, to study what's there and just noticing. Oh. And, you know, I noticed like within three minutes, I was getting like ten different projections coming at me, right? in a family context. That can happen, right? And to notice that in work and so forth. And, how, and we have to have a fairly quiet mind to notice that, or, because the natural tendency is just to start reacting, right? So, so I think it, it points to um, deepening our mindfulness practice and having it be more uh, external. Can you can you notice? Can you can you watch the television as a mindfulness practice? I remember there's one last thing to think of. I remember as part of our uh, training in body-based psychotherapy, we watched uh, uh, we watched uh, clips of public figures without the sound. We just watched their body language. Really, really interesting. Really interesting to watch some of the like classic, you know, like. You know, politics at the t- it was at the time of the Iraq War invasion and so forth. And we watched public officials talking about Iraq, and it was Condoleezza Rice. Every when, if you watch some clips of her, she continually is going like this as she's saying something. <laughs> Please. Um, so my name is Adam. Hi, Adam. And uh, so I really liked what you said about you know looking at yourself, looking at society, to really uncover that ignorance, yeah. to alleviate suffering. Yeah. But I've noticed, probably more so in San Francisco than when I lived out east, people who have uncovered like kind of their views of society and then have a deeper degree of suffering because there's a disconnect of how society is versus how they wish it could be. Yeah. And it seems that they experience a lot of suffering with that disconnect. Yeah. So once you've uncovered the ignorance in yourself and society, how do you to how do you keep yourself from suffering between dissonance of what is and what you would wish it to be? Yeah. Another great question. Um, I'll give a I'll take care of that one in a minute or two. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the question again about a uh, few if one is seeing more clearly, let's say about oneself, but especially about the society, and one notices that um, despite one's efforts, um, there's a gap between what one thinks uh, should be the case and the way things are. And for a lot of people, a lot of activists, but, but all sorts of people, it can be, there can be suffering connected with that burnout, um, can go into strong judgment, right? You know, uh, demonization and so forth. 
And um, so I think it's a practice, you know, it's, it's um, I mean, I think in the traditional teachings, there are a lot of very valuable practices because, you know, you think of the figure of the Bodhisattva in traditional teachings, there's a very long-term view. And this, you know, in the, when I did the book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, um, um, I interviewed a lot of people and most all of them, first of all, had a very long-term view of things. You know, I, I know uh, Dr. Ari Ratni from Sri Lanka, for example, who um, done a, lot, a tremendous amount of work there and ending the civil war. He, and they posted this on their website, they had a 500-year plan for transformation. Right? Because they, the problems took 500 years to form with colonialism and so forth. It'll take 500 years to work out. And they actually delineated. So I think having a long-term view, which is related to patience, which is developing a certain amount of equanimity, working with compassion, because, you know, really, again, it's, the, I didn't go into this so much, but the other side, when one has an, an, a sense that ignorance is the root problem, the cultivation of compassion is also very crucial. You know, because it's, and, and one can actually see, oh, these people are suffering and many are suffering because of ignorance and there can and compassion is really crucial so a lot of inner practices that could help to uh, cut through tendencies to get attached to results or to think it should happen and to have maybe have a more realistic view here are the causes and conditions here's how long the problems took to form maybe I can be realistic about how long they will take to be resolved we you know we want you know I think that's not that's often not the case with a lot of activists. Of course, we have to balance that with urgency, right? So, so it's there's a lot there. That's a great question, really, to 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 look at. Should we? Yeah, so we should, I think we have to go to. <coughs> I'd be willing to stay for another hour or two. But there's, a, there's a lot there, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <coughs> okay. Announcements. Announcement meditation. Um, next week, on the 23rd, we will have Dave Rico. Uh, many of you know him from uh, previous visits. He was a PhD, marriage and family therapist, a psychologist, teacher, and writer in Santa Barbara and San Francisco, who emphasizes Jungian transpersonal and spiritual perspectives in his work. He is the author of How to Be an Adult in Relationships. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I'd uh, like to re-welcome uh, Walter, uh, Donna Doss, and Donna Kamala. And uh, that will be my segue into talking about Donna. Uh, <laughs> the GBF, one of our traditions is after Donna, which is a Sanskrit and Pali word meaning generosity, cultivating generosity of good. This can be characterized by unattached and unconditional generosity, giving, and letting go. GBF asks for a weekly donation of $10 or more to meet our expenses. This includes our rent, the speaker honorarium, newsletter production and mailing costs, and the Larkin Street Youth Center dinner that gets hosted each month. Our host will be coming around at the social time with our Donna Bowl. We appreciate your continued support that sustains our wonderful song. Uh, periodically, we need to just remind people, if you come in past uh, when the meditation starts, please sit in the outer room 
so as not to disturb the people at the hall. Thank you. Other announcements? Katie. My name is Kate, and I'm the host. I'll be coming around with the Donald uh, There's some treats out uh, in the uh, outer area. There's some apple can coffee cake and some other treats. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also tea. Uh, if you have tea, there's hot water in the dispenser. Uh, just wash your mug out in the hot soapy water after. There's a sign-up list on the credenza for our um, mailing list and our electronic um, and then finally, there's a group of people that go out to lunch at 12:30. They gather by the door. If you're interested in joining them, look for them there. And um, that's it. Hi, uh, I brought uh, some flyers and brought a few copies of that book that I mentioned, uh, the Engaged Spiritual Life, which is just out on the table right here, along with some uh, flyers for upcoming events and teaching in the next few months on, on three topics related to the talk actually. One is on um, speech practice, which has been which has uh, been a focus area. I'm doing a day long at Spirit Rock uh, February 23rd. There are flyers for that and a, a retreat on speech practice which is a six day retreat. We call it mindful communication. Um, and that's in June. Um, and we, we integrate mindfulness and uh, wise speech and also nonviolent communication. And then um, a day long in May on the theme of judgmental mind and also a, a, a retreat on that also in May. And there are flyers for that. And then um, lastly, um, a retreat in April, a six-day retreat on, uh, called uh, Awakening Through Service and Social Action. That's really on the path of service, the path of social action. You could look at many of these questions. <laughs> many of them. Yeah. Yes. Thanks again, uh, Donald. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, let's form a circle now. Close. Thank you. Truth, this practice. May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.